This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody. It is Einstein Go Go time. My name is Chris KP. And if you uh, are tuned in and, uh, and focusing carefully, you'll have observed the absence of Dr Shane's dulcet tones. Fear not, my friends. Um, he's not in today, I'm afraid to tell you. Um, he has even more important things to do um, than Einstein Go Go. Hard to believe as that might be. I couldn't possibly imagine. Well, yeah, I know. I, I find I struggle with it as well. Um, that's the bad news, though. Uh, no, 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 hang Sorry. The bad news is that he's put you in charge, Chris KP. That's that's the very bad news. Yeah, I, I, yes, and I, I'm stretching to find good news. Um, but I think I, the good news is that I'm not the only person in the studio. So, so listeners, you will not be subjected to just my voice for the next hour. Um, as you can hear, I have the delightful Dr. Jen with me. How are you? Good morning, Chris. And I'm being very facetious. It's an utter delight to be here with you today. And I'm sure Shane's left the show in capable hands. I think. I must say, that I think it's I think I think it's much too early to suggest that uh, that it's a delight to be here. I think that's. Uh, I think it's good of you, but I think Speak it's much too early. I think she's trying the classic build them up, take them down approach. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a yeah. slow learner. And, and, that, and that voice is the even better news I've got to you in the studio. How are you? I'm good. Well, I am feeling a bit unsettled. The whole oh. sort of structure of the room and the lack of Shane and everything seems a little bit topsy-turvy. So it's... Uh, well, nobody we'll would have noticed until now. <laughs> now. Now they're all aware of it. It's, it, is all, it, all, it is all upside down and inside out. We, we've, got, uh, we've got Ken pushing our buttons, which is, you know, uh, you know obviously an unusual place pleasure for us um, <laughs> and uh, I'm trying not or to giggle him, <laughs> he does it very well <laughs> um, and and Liv is uh, is on my on my right hand side um, uh, tweeting for us as well so you'll be you'll be well connected one way or the other um, Dr Jen tell me what have you discovered this week in news well, I want to talk about bears because I'm, I'm pretty into bears. I think they're good. And, and Dr Ewan pointed out to me when we were talking about bears that last month polar bears were in the news because a whole lot of polar bears, more than 50 polar bears, descended on a small town um, in an island in northern Russia. And authorities actually ended up declaring a state of emergency. They had to erect fences around um, school play- schools and around playgrounds. And all of these polar bears had arrived essentially because their migration routes have been interrupted by a changing climate. And they were hungry. They were looking for food. Um, and the reason Ewan was talking about that was because the story that I found this week was talking about um, black bears and food. And that is, there's been a study in uh, Colorado looking at the fact that black bears, or at least some black bears, are eating a heap of human food, which, you know, is not very good for them. And, and hunters aren't allowed to lay out food for bears. So you can't just put out, you know, a pile of donuts and say, here, bears, you know, come closer. So these are bears that are managing to find human food um, themselves essentially by scavenging and black bears normally hibernate for up to six months of the year so a normal black bear hibernation is anywhere between four and six months and it's essentially what you do when food is scarce you know when conditions are tough and there's not enough food around going into a cave and and hibernating for four four to six months is a good way of coping but Uh, What this study did was looking at how long bears who are eating lots of human food end up hibernating for. And the female bears, so they just studied the females, the female black bears in Colorado that were eating the most human food, unsurprisingly were hibernating for the least amount of time because if your body isn't signalling to you, hey, hey, going into calorie deficit, why would you go and hibernate? But So you kind of think, well, what does that matter? 
good on them. They're getting more calories. Mm-hmm. They're being smart. They're scavenging. They're coping. Isn't that great? But it turns out that we think a whole lot of important stuff is happening during hibernation. So it's not just saying there's not enough food out there. I want to take a break from hunting for food. It's there might be a whole lot of other stuff going on in the body. Um, to the extent that, that researchers have suggested hibernation is actually slowing down ageing in these bears, kind of at a, at a level, at the level of the cell. So one of the ways to look at this, and some of our listeners have probably heard of telomeres, telomeres are little caps at the end of our strands of DNA that protect our chromosomes. People have likened them to being the little plastic tags on the end of your shoelaces that prevent your shoelaces from unravelling. So the idea is that a telomere puts a little cap at the end of your DNA to protect it from damage. And so these researchers very cleverly said, well, if hibernation is really important and these bears are hibernating less, let's have a look at their telomeres and see if it tells us anything about how their bodies are changing. Um, And sure enough, so the bears that ate the most junk food were um, hibernating for the least period of time also showed more damage in these telomeres, which suggests that kind of physically they're actually ageing faster. So it's a real concern that they're it's finding our food and it's really messing up their bodies. So, so who'd, who'd have thought that, um, that fast food would be bad for everyone? Yeah. <laughs> including bears. Um, so uh, am, I to, am I to understand that the message from this is live fast food, die young? <laughs> is that... Or is that uh, <laughs> You've so been planning that, mate. <laughs> uh, well, you, it set it up beautifully. That is extremely sad. It it's, is. It's bad enough that we're taking their environment away and making everything frightening for them without feeding them crap food and just... Let's face it, hibernation notwithstanding the advantages to, to life that you've just described, is an awesome idea, yeah, right? Totally. Like, you know, it's who miserable would, and cold. I'm going to bed for three months. I think it's a great wanna, idea. Who wouldn't want to hibernate? But, yeah, the thing that concerns me the most is this isn't people deliberately putting out stashes of high-calorie food to try and entice bears to come to where they can be hunted. This is bears finding their own, you know, however it is, whether it's in dumps or, I don't know, what scavenging in bins. You know, they're finding it themselves. So fixing the problem could actually be quite tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Three. Triple. Good morning, everybody. You're on 3RRR FM and Einstein at GoGo. Um, we're joined on the line now by Associate Professor Yanan Fan from the School of Mathematics and Statistics at UNSW. Good morning, Yanan. Can you hear us? Good morning. Hi. How are you going? Now, uh, just to bring our listeners up to speed, at universities all over the world, students are given the opportunity to rate their teachers and lecturers and tutors um, in terms of how well they're, they're doing at their job, I suppose, which is essentially, a, uh, I guess, a, uh, a customer insight survey. Um, it happens in various different ways. But you guys have actually been taking a slightly more statistically robust approach to this and trying to study the responses that students have. How did you go about doing this? Yes, so students are are given a, a survey at the end of each course at, at the university, and this has been going on for quite a number of years. And uh, in, they're, they're given lots of questions, but the most important question is whether they're ha- uh, overall whether they're happy with the teaching of of the lecturer. So, uh, and this has been collected electronically um, for about. You know, since about 2006, it's been a long time, and so we took all the data and had a look at whether um, the students uh, were evaluating whether there were whether gender differences between um, how they rated uh, male teachers and whether how they uh, uh, rated female teachers. 
So, so out of interest, did, this, did the the trigger to undertake this study was this because you had lecturers mentioning this to you, or were you just interested in it from your own point of view? What was the the starting point? Uh, I think there were some some uh, th- there had been some studies uh, uh, published that had shown some differences between uh, whether there were gender differences, and of course, we've there's also of course. You know what you might suspect uh, could be true uh, from a personal perspective, um, and so it sounded plausible that 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 it, well it sounded it it sounded plausible, but yet probably we were not expecting to find um, differences in terms of the uh, huge differences in terms of numbers because there's just so much um, variation between people that it could be difficult. But with a a really large data set, um, it then becomes easier to to identify if there's a strong effect against one group of people um, in particular or or another. So we were quite pleased in in the sense that we were certain to find out, find the the results that we found, but it was interesting from a from a statistical, sure. um, scientific perspective. Yeah, that that it came became um, a significant difference. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is uh, Ewan here. Look, this is a fascinating study, and I'm actually a teacher myself at Deakin University. And I guess I'm, I'm kind of interested to understand what the composition of the classes, what effect that has on, on how they, in a sense, rate teachers. So, I, you know, I assume in different units and different courses there's biases in, in either direction in terms of males and females um, taking those those units. So, so what effect does that have on how they rate um, lecturers? And I guess my, my second question, somewhat related, is, you know, how much do you think these results vary um, either from course to course within a university but also in different universities as well? Mm. So it would be interesting to, so I'll probably answer your second question first. I think it would be very interesting if uh, other universities could have a look at their data as well to give us, so the more data that we have, we have them, it's it's a matter of whether um, it's released to to be analysed. So it would be interesting to to look, the more we look at it, the the more we understand what's going on. Um, Whether they... Very, they do. I, I, I do think that different universities, between different universities, there could be potentially differences in how students behave. Uh, I guess it's it's a question of what exactly are we trying to study. So if if it's just a, ge- a general gender difference, or whether within that within the faculties that there would be differences as well. Because for example, with our engineering um, school, we couldn't uh, the the analysis didn't show any major swing against women but as we know in engineering there's very very few uh, females in in uh, as lecturers or and also at the at the higher echelon of the of the university so and that's not surprising in the sense that we could see that there were a lot of differences between people so it became difficult to 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 see the difference but it'd be interesting to see with data from you know more universities and more data that possibly they, that, that that what we expect what what we see happening in science should be it will be a similar um situation with uh, with engineering so the, the interesting thought that I had, you mentioned earlier that um, that uh, you've got data going back to 2006. So in that period of time, what has the university been doing with the data they have? Uh, so the, so the, the data is used and um, to to make sure that the teachers, the lecturers are uh, do, doing their job well. So they take the, the 
the student responses very, very seriously. And in particular, they're used for promotion purposes as well. So if um, if a if a if a lecturer is not performing uh, above average above the average, then they are not going to get promoted. Sure. Uh, they're li- not not likely to get promoted. I should say, yeah. Okay, so it's important. It's important information to get right then. It's absolutely important information to get right. Yeah. So I, so these these kinds of surveys are 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 good and, and bad. I I guess it's it's important to have these surveys because uh, you can see that, that that people do try harder when when um, you, you know when people, when the students are less happy with them. So so they do mm. tend to help improve their teaching. But if there is a bias there, then we need to address that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and it's Jen. I know you found some uh, really interesting differences between um, men and women as as educators, and, and that differed did differ between some of the disciplines. But what did you also find about when students are uh, um, assessing their, their their lecturers, depending on whether that lecturer comes from an English speaking background or not? Um, uh, uh, we I think we don't know. We we couldn't see um, a pattern in in, in that perspective but in the male and female um, uh, uh, world there was it seems that students are evaluating males differently to how they're evaluating females so uh, what I mean is that when they when they're talking about when they're saying with well, this female teacher is really good they, they tend to say things like um, they were really approachable they were really nice they're really available to them all the time, whereas when they're evaluating males, they tend to be saying things like, "Oh, he's really, really good, and he's he really he's really knowledgeable, and he was a really good um, um, lecturer." So there's a really big difference in 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 what they're actually um, what they're actually evaluating when they're when they're evaluate when they're giving the answer to the same question. That is interesting. Yeah, just another follow-up question from, I guess, Chris is about uh, what to do with this data. Uh, is there any opportunity to essentially summarise that data and share it with students at the start of a course and sort of educate them in a way about the biases that exist? So, you know, if you could show a student and say, look, you know, here's data from 10 yeah. years showing that there's a bias against females or, or males, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And, and yeah. so they can actually, in a sense, realise that and be a bit more, I guess, um, recognise that there's, we do have these um, inherent biases and they're not helpful, um, that may yeah. actually potentially change things with time or at least help to. Yes, absolutely. And it would be very interesting to see, to continue to look at this data and see if there's a, a positive, you know, good effect by, from doing something like that. Yeah. So that prompts, I guess, a, I guess a, almost a key question then. So has the university received this information or, or seen the paper and is, are they planning to make any, any changes? Yeah, so the university is aware of it, and they are looking at. Um, they're going to look at ways of of, of, of addressing this. Yes, so, so they are taking this very seriously. Outstanding. Look, thank you very much for joining us. I, I must say that it's it's great to see someone applying some rigour to these surveys. People use surveys all the time um, for all manner of, of purposes and there's a, a very wide range of, uh, of, I guess, data quality control uh, within them. So it's great to see some rigour going into this um, because, as you say, it's it's uh, it's load-bearing stuff um, and it's good to provide quality information for teachers and lecturers too, for, for whom, you know, the uh, the whole the courses um, are, are extraordinarily important. So thank you very much, Associate Professor Yanan Fan from the School of Mathematics and statistics at UNSW. Um, thanks for joining us on Einstein to Go Go. Thank you.
Thank, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Have a fantastic Sunday afternoon. Three. With Einstein to go, go on three triple R FM. We are joined in the studio by Dr. Karen Rowe from Museum Victoria. Welcome aboard, Karen. Thank you. Um, you've been studying birds, but more specifically, bird sounds. Um, tell us about why, firstly. Well, one of the best ways to tell what animals are in an area is um, by listening to them, particularly when they're vocal, and, and birds are notoriously vocal species. I mean, it's also true for some mammals and frogs in particular, but um, they're really good at um, indicating where they are just by listening for them. And so sort of the project that we've been developing is really about sort of eavesdropping on animals to figure out where they are. So wh why, uh, or I guess how is that better than observing them any other way? Well, if you've ever been into a forest in um, Australia, it's really hard to see the birds that are in the trees. But because birds make really distinctive sounds, you can use their unique sounds to figure out where they are. So, you know, a magpie sounds different to a kookaburra or a cockatoo. And so when you're able to um, figure out what those differences are, you can actually use that to say, I know what species are here. I know when they're there. So presumably, then, so the, the act of gathering that data is then simpler, presumably. Yeah, the, the gathering part is the easy part, <laughs> I would say. Um, so, so lots of technological advances recently have really kind of um, enhanced the amount of data that we can gather. So we have these waterproof recorders um, that we can go out and they can be programmed to record whenever we're really interested. So like for frogs, you would, would be targeting nighttime. Um, for birds, you'd be targeting in the morning or during <coughs> the day. Um, and then when we get the... Um, recorded data off of that, then we can analyse it. And that's really where the real work starts. Is it possible to um, to have the... I'm thinking about camera traps which get triggered by a movement. Can you get something that's triggered by a sound? Uh, not yet. Um, so we're working towards that. There are actually really very new um, devices that are really, really tiny. Um, and they have a, a mini processor on them that actually can you can program them to specifically detect a particular species. And so okay. some of the work that we're doing at the museum is sort of enabling that... Um, yeah. Um, so a couple of questions about yeah bird calls. I mean, one of the other issues too, right, is is mimics. Mm -hmm. So species that mimic other birds, and also regional variation in calls. Yeah. Which, unless you're a super you know awesome bird expert, can be really hard to sometimes tell apart. And so. What, what's the software development like, right? Because I suspect, right, that the core libraries are really critical in this in terms of being able to identify, okay, that's actually a golden whistler and not a whip bird and, vi you know, vice versa. Or, yeah, that's that's from northeast Victoria or that's from New South Wales in terms of the regional variation. So where are we at with sort of core libraries and developing the programs that can actually make sense of the data as well? So we're all, I think we're a long way off where we need to be. Um, one of the biggest reasons why we're at the museum and got into this is really about gathering the known vocalizations of species across the state, across the country, across the world. There are a couple places where you can download that data. Um, sometimes you can get it really easily, sometimes you can't. But really it's those libraries that are critical to be able to develop the tools that we can use to do the automated recognition. So I would say that automated recognition has a long way to go. Um, for the, the work that we're doing is really species by species approaches. There are other approaches that are more deep learning, machine learning processes, but those require huge data sets. And we just don't have that data yet. 
So can you give us kind of the conservation overview of why this is such an important tool? Because I assume listening to calls can't give you a good indication of how many birds are in an area. So that's a piece of data that's missing. But the fact that you're investing so much time and energy in making this work suggests there are other real benefits to it. What are the conservation um, gains from being able to detect if a bird is there or not by its call? So sort of the way that motion sensor cameras have really enhanced our ability to know where species are and where they are. I mean, think about how many news stories recently have been, you know, rediscovery of species based on a photo. Um, the same sort of thing is happening with birds. So we've been doing a lot of work with plains wanderers. Um, they're really hard to see. They're hard to know where they are, but they make a very distinctive call. And if you have a bunch of recorders out, then you're really enhancing the amount of area where you could be listening for them, you could be detecting them. And so really the acoustics is, is sort of enhancing our ability to figure out across broad geographic and temporal scales that allows us to then go in and ask deeper questions about, well, we know that they're here, how many birds are there? Are they breeding? Are they successful? Um, and I, I think it's just really one more um, tool that we have in our sort of conservation arsenal. We really don't know where a lot of species are. We don't really know what's out there. And I think it's just one more bit of help mm. in that sort of um, trying to figure out how we can best target actions to help save species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, going back to my point, I guess, about core libraries, are we, are we drilling down to see how much variation there is with individuals? Because we know for other species, like with whales as an example, you know, we, we're learning more and more that there'll be individuals who change their, you know, their sound ever so slightly, and you can pick that out. And I presume that happens with birds too, right? That there might be tiny little differences so that presumably at some point we will be actually get abundance estimates, which would be hugely beneficial because as Jenny's saying, you know, when you go out to an environment and you're doing a, a bird survey, it's really hard to go, oh, that's that's 12 birds or that's 15. <laughs> it's basically impossible to do. You can get a relative measure and say, oh, well, that might be more than 50 or it might be more than 100, but it's really, really hard to get accurate. But I would assume with time and technology, we may be able to get to that point if there's those little tiny differences in individuals' calls. Is that something you've been looking um, I would, s so there's sort of two directions. So there's, there's the way that you build a model for uh, species vocalization can be fuzzy. And so you can say, well, it should pick up all the variation within like a region honey eater. But that means that there's going to be mistakes, right? So you can't just rely on the fact that the computer is able to say there's 30 vocalizations of the species and you automatically assume that that's right. We're not there yet, for sure. Um, but the other aspect of it is really sort of how you, um, uh, you know, sort of go around that and, um, sorry, I kind of, <laughs> I'm trying to think of how to answer this. Um, I think that there's a lot of work that we can still do for that and um, part of it is going to be um, really just taking a step back and, and building those libraries. Sure. Um, and. I just I think that we have a lot to learn, particularly for Australian birds. I know we we know a lot for American birds, but not necessarily for Australian. You could tell I'm not from here, so I know American <laughs> birds a little bit we, more. We can tell by your yeah. call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can I can I go slightly crazy? And okay. if this is too crazy, go tell ahead. me to, to get stuffed. Um, so so <laughs> what we're talking about us walking out there and hearing bird sounds yep. uh, and recording those sounds. Presumably, birds aren't making sounds for our benefit, though. Is there anything technologically we can do to assess, you know? Uh, I guess audio files essentially um, from the bird's point of view in, in terms of bird ranges, bird hearing ranges. So birds roughly hear about the same frequency ranges. How that very we do. convenient. Yes, it is actually. <laughs> um, so birds can roughly hear, you know, a little bit below a thousand hertz up to above 
8,000 hertz. That's sort of the range that you normally think. There's certainly like superb fairy wrens call above that frequency. Um, there are some bats that call in ultrasonic. There's a few, there's one species that actually calls in our, our audible frequency range. So it's actually really convenient that yeah. birds call within that, that range. And, and listening for calls of birds is a really, um, uh, you know, sort of historical legacy. Yes, like yes. a lot of before we had binoculars, we were using um, songs of birds to really find them. Nice. I've got a really important question, Karen. What's your favourite bird call? Oh, Good call. In Australia. Wouldn't in limit Australia. It for you. Hmm. I don't know. I guess the gang gang cockatoos are one of my favourite. Ah, you and I were walking our puppy this morning and happened to listen to a really big group of gang gangs going off. We, we recorded it because we just thought it sounded <laughs> so great. You should be playing yeah. it back right which, now. Which prompts the question then. <laughs> if, yeah. if it's relatively easy to get these recordings, and, and I guess it is. <laughs> if, if someone like me can do it. Yes, if, if she can do it, it must be a piece of cake. Um, is, it, is, is this something that people can get, you know, that, that average punters in the street, so to speak, can get quality, you know, recordings that can be used for research? Is, is this a citizen science opportunity yeah i think so i mean one of the the projects that we're really working on with the victoria national parks association is a community driven approach to acoustic monitoring so this is a bit more of um, a, a deeper engagement project so we really approach groups that are really interested in knowing what species are in their local areas and then we develop a research question around that that involves acoustic monitoring but there are certainly um other projects around the world. Um, there's one in um, England that really sort of uses, it's actually an auto ID program where you record 20 seconds of a call and then it tells you what the likely things are that cool. it could be. But then it uses those clips to build the sound library of those species. So yeah, it's nice. able to, to match those two up. Yeah. So have you found any really cool big surprises yet in terms of, you know, birds that you didn't know were there and all of a sudden we do now because, you know, they might, as you say, you go into rainforest and it's really hard to see things, but occasionally you hear them, but not always either because you're not there at the right time of day as an example. So have you made any awesome discoveries yet about things we didn't know? I think most of them have been sort of incremental discoveries, yeah. um, um, in part because a lot of the work has been around the protocols and sure. developing the methodologies of it. Um, I think for me, the the project that I've worked on, um, the Plains Wanderer one, really is really exciting because um, we found them in places that we suspected they might be, but we didn't have evidence to suggest that they were there. And so then we can go back to those places and, and sort of build our knowledge of, you know. And, and one of the things too is having regular monitoring is so important to be able to disentangle temporary trends from long-term you know, changes. And so I think that that's really the capacity to be able to do that is the really exciting, even though it just seems to be like a little minor thing. No, I think that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I think we have very narrow um, knowledge of where species can actually potentially live. Yeah. So anything that expands that knowledge is wonderful. Yeah. 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 If, um, if people listening are interested in this, uh, the Victoria National Parks project, is there somewhere they can go or something they can do? Yeah, the project's called Communities Listening for Nature, um, okay. and it's in partnership between Victoria National Parks Association and Museums Victoria. Okay, um, so, so you, you use, I think you can just Google it. And I was going to say it, up, yeah. it sounds searchable. Yeah, it is very searchable. Outstanding. Look, uh, Dr. Karen Rowe, thank you very much for joining us here. This is. Uh, it means that next time I'm uh, wandering the paddocks doing bad bird calls, I feel guilty, um, <laughs> just in case there is uh, some poor researcher somewhere recording me. Um, and if I've already ruined somebody's data, I apologise in advance. Um, thank you very much for joining us on Einstein Go Go today. Thanks for having me. You're on Einstein Go Go on Three Triple R FM. Um, I did promise good news at the start of the show, and that might have been an empty promise. 
but um, we'll find out soon enough. Jen, what have you got for us? I think I've got good news, kind of. I've certainly got a pretty cool story to tell you about. Um, and I'm back on sleep. Maybe it's a bit of a theme in my life at the moment. <laughs> last time Something was, you want to tell us? Last time I was talking hibernation. Now I want to talk uh, more generally about sleep. So we all know sleep's essential. You know, we hear about it all the time. Basically, we die if we don't get it, mm. so it must be pretty important. Bon Jovi said he'd sleep when he's dead. Yeah, well, look what happened to Bon Jovi. No, he won't. He'll just rot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, too grim. But the fact is, you know, we know, you know, pretty much everything that lives. Whether you're a jellyfish or a fly or a worm, you have to sleep. We we believe that it restores our body. It helps us to learn. Helps us to make memories. You know, we we know it's important, but we don't actually fully understand why it's so important. Because of course, sleep also makes us very vulnerable. You know, you can get mm-hmm. eaten by a lion while you're asleep. But some, <laughs> some not all of us, presumably. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It depends where you sleep. <laughs> But some research in, is in, researchers in Israel basically reasoned that if sleep has evolved in everything that has a nervous system, maybe it would be worth looking at the level of an individual nerve cell to see what sure. sleep is doing, which is pretty good logic, I reckon. And they found a way to look at the effect of sleep at the level of a single neuron. What they did was genetically engineer these um, little zebrafish to be completely transparent. And zebrafish are already studied by heaps and heaps mm. of researchers because their brains are actually somewhat similar to ours, although they clearly a little, look a little bit different to us. And what they did was make the um, zebrafish transparent and then label the individual chromosomes in their nerve cells in their brain with different colours so they could watch them had a really fancy microscope set up so they could watch what the chromosomes did when the zebrafish were awake and when the zebrafish were asleep and they found really big differences so when the fish were awake the chromosomes didn't move very much but they were um, the DNA strands were were, um, breaking down so you got a built-up of damaged DNA strands in the um, in the nerve cells and this also happened um, if the sleep were awake, sorry, if the fish were awake during the night, so this is not a day-night thing. So whenever the fish were awake, basically the DNA was breaking down and accumulating damage. But when the fish were asleep, the chromosomes started moving more and actually started being repaired. So they could watch the chromosomes changing before their eyes under the microscope and showing that they were moving so that different parts of the DNA could be repaired as they were kind of exposed, I guess. Um, So essentially when we're awake, um, damage is building up. We can't repair it fast enough. So when we're asleep, or at least when these zebrafish were asleep, that was when the repair was happening. And they likened it to the fact that councils go out and repair potholes in the road at night hmm. when there's hardly any traffic because you nice. can't get out there and do it during the day because there's just too much going on. Um, and what they found was that if they made the zebrafish be sleep deprived, if they didn't allow them to sleep, some of the neurons almost you know, were verging on dying because they wow. had so much DNA damage. So they're basically proposing that um, the tighter we get, our nerve cells accumulate more and more damage to the point that they will start dying unless we go to sleep. And what so that it, the fixing can happen. What's the flow-on effect of that? I mean, if that were to happen, if you were to get, you know, if you were to basically let your neurons suffer in that way, yep. what would, how would that look? What would it manifest as? Well, if enough neurons die, you lose brain function. You lose brain capacity. <laughs> okay. M- we can't is, afford is there, for that Is there a middle bit <laughs> where I'm just underproductive for apparently, a while? Apparently Einstein was a big sleeper. So, oh, really? Yeah, enough okay. said. Well, 11, 11 hours, I well, think, I read something. Lot, so, you know. uh, lots of really well-known creatives have come out and said, yeah, that they slept, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours a night. But this mm. is interesting because it's the first time we've actually being able to visualise mm. why it is that sleep is so important because that that's the cool. only time our DNA actually can be repaired. That repair cannot happen when we're awake. Extremely nice. Look mm. to you. What do you got? I've got a good story uh, where one step closer it would seem to smart skin 
And no. everyone's favourite animals are cephalopods, so squid, cuttlefish, octopus, you know, pretty awesome animals. Mm. And one of the things we know, of course, anyone's been lucky enough to experience this, either, you know, seeing them at an aquarium or ideally even better in the wild, is how they change colour. So they, their ability to change colour either as camouflage or in many cases to impress their partners, which I thought, that's pretty cool. Imagine if we had skin and we walking down the street, you see someone you like, you just all of a sudden change your colour, get, get your groove on, <laughs> you know, he or she decides whether she's interested. That'd be pretty fun, we, right? We kind of have the opposite because we can blush. You know, when you're trying yeah. to impress someone, you but screw it's only it up. one color. Yeah. It's only one color. If you look at some <laughs> sure. of those videos, I mean, what the what the sure. cuttlefish are doing is crazy, right? But anyway, so the way they do this is they have basically two types of cells: chromatophores, which are basically very close to the skin surface, and then iridophores, which are further down. And the way that they basically change their color is by affecting light in two different ways. In the um, they have these pigment cells that they can stretch. And that absorbs light um, and, uh, and the majority of wavelengths, but then some of that light is reflected back and that obviously gives you certain colour. Um, that's basically what we call pigmented colour. <laughs> um, but the iridophores as well, um, they've known for a while, also have this structural effect on light. And that basically um, creates this iridescent type colour that you see when you see, again, these, these squids and, and so cephalopods and so forth, cephalopods doing their thing. Um, but they've assumed for a long time that these two types of, uh, I guess, effect on like it only happen in, in in one cell, not both. And typically, they were arguing that the um, the pigmentation pigmentation effect is happening in the chromatophores, and the structural effect on light, this iridescence, is only happening in the iridophores d- deeper down. Right. But it turns out it's actually happening in the chromatophores so both as well. Happening in both happening in the one thing at the one time, and they hadn't known this for a very long time. So the the people who work on these things are, are super, super, super excited because I think it's basically just changed our whole thinking about how cephalopods are actually doing these incredible feats they do in terms of either camouflage and, and so forth, changing their colour. What, what actually is the is the chemistry behind this? Don't ask me about chemistry. <laughs> sorry, I'm an ecologist. It's really cool. Well, clearly it's really cool. Well, I think it's more a physics question, right, when you're talking about how well, you're distorting yes. light. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, so th- th- obviously they're, they're actually stretching. In the case of chromatophores, they stretch these cells with the pigment in them and that therefore has an effect on how much of that light's absorbed and the different wavelengths I'm and just, so forth. I'm just but wondering how, how, no, much closer, question. how much closer does it get it to, to us to be able to synthesise this? Can we, you know, how but close that, are we? Yeah, that's what they're excited about. And, of course, they don't know exactly how close we are yet, but they argue that we're getting closer and I'm all for it because if I can have my smart skin and you know and change well, colour as I walk down the street I mean come on. We can learn a lot from disco fish um, <laughs> I think it, uh, it also the opportunity here is also that um, not only could you change colour to your mood but you could also just go without clothes because presumably you could make jeans and a t-shirt looking skin. Very tight jeans obviously. Yeah I think just seeing sort of... Can we not go there, please, yeah. on a Sunday morning? There might be we've already got enough. Breakfast. We've already got enough mammals in the world in terms of riding their bikes. I don't know whether we need to go down that path of people having no clothes, so to speak. So, all right, let me, let me try and give you some, some good news or at least something that made me smile along a similar line. Um, there are, of course, across society, you know, ver- various groups, um, and, and one of those are the hipsters, and, I, and this is Triple R. I, I assume that there is an army of hipsters <laughs> listening to us right now, and good morning to you all. Um, thanks for getting up so early. Um, the... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, the, there's a really interesting study that was actually first published in 2014, but it's been revised recently. And to cut a long story short, what they were looking at was what makes someone turn away from the mainstream and produce whatever sort of you know subcultural look that they've got. And so what they were studying was, okay, there's the mainstream, that, which is the, the very narrow part of the middle of the bell curve that is quote-unquote normal, if you like. Um, and then there are people who rebel against it. And we've probably all been there. At some point you've gone, nah, screw this. I don't want to do that. I'm doing something different. But when you say something different, 
what is that different? It's very difficult to be genuinely, completely 100% creative and produce a new thing. It's probably derivative of something somewhere along the line. Um, and, of course, for that to happen, you need to be aware of those other things, those alternatives. So what these guys have done is they've produced a reasonably simple mathematical model looking at the normal and the different and the time difference between those. So when you start getting exposed to alternatives, when do they become part of your thing? Um, and, they, and they produce what they call the hipster effect, which is basically that it's, it's almost counterintuitive intuitive idea that people who are fighting against the mainstream end up all looking the same <laughs> which sounds really sort of dismissive and almost almost rude actually but they they are actually showing that it does happen and if you control the, this this period of prolonged delay in the middle um, then you can start to understand how long it takes for people to end up looking the same despite the differences now that's an interesting piece of, of mathematical modeling i thought what really got me though was that they actually got a complaint because one of the articles about this was printed and there was a, there was a, a photo in the article and some bloke got in touch with them saying getting cranky because they took a, his photo without permission and it was getting really uncomfortable there for a while until um, someone realised that it wasn't him. <laughs> it was a total other person. Um, just looked who so just looked so much like him. Doppelganger. Like I said, I don't know if it's good news or not, but it certainly made me smile. Um, so there we are, folks. We're, we're pretty much at the end of all things. Um, and the, uh, the, the, the team from Eat It are banging on the door um, with pots and pans, as it happens, which seems very appropriate indeed. I think we're staying for lunch, aren't we? Well, it depends what's in the pots and pans, presumably. Mm. At the moment, it's just noise. Uh, <laughs> but certainly, I would encourage everybody else to hang around because it's always worth it. Um, Dr Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for, you know, running the ship so well. Uh, thanks for saying that. That's very generous of you. Um, Dr Ewan, welcome. Thank you to you too. Pleasure. Great job. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thanks to all our guests. Thank you for Ken for pushing our buttons so beautifully and with such panache. You can't see that from where you are at home, folks, but trust me, it's, it's excellent. The flair. <laughs> it is. Thank you, Liv, for pushing our buttons on the computer as well. We'll see you all next week on Einstein Go Go. Good afternoon for now. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.